pick out the greatest text in the scripture, what would you pick? I think a, I think a very real case could be made for a text that the average person would never select. And that is that little part of a verse, half of a verse in that lost little book of Haggai, Habakkuk in the Old Testament. The second chapter in the fourth verse, where there is a text that says, the just shall live by faith. Now, it is not difficult to build a case for this as the most significant verse in Scripture. You will remember that when the Apostle Paul was converted, came to really believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, God took him off, and for three years he spent in isolation, or at least not in Christian missionary service. And in that time, he reconstructed his faith. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the religion of Israel. He knew the Messianic promises, these things but he could not believe that they related to Jesus, and then he knew they did. And then he had to put the whole package together again because he had spent a long time proving that Jesus couldn't be the fulfillment of Old Testament faith, and now he knew he was. He had to go through and rethink the whole thing. You find his rethinking in the book of Galatians. You find it in the book of Romans. You find it in the other epistles of the New Testament. Now, when Paul began to see that he was not saved by keeping the law, and he was not saved by his own works, he was not saved by being, as it were, sort of the incarnation of the law of Moses, that he was only saved by the salvation offered in Christ, the grace of Christ, the life of Christ being given to him, he saw that it was not by his works and what he did, but it was by faith in the person of Jesus. And so he looked for some biblical text to express it. He picked up that text in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And that profoundly influenced him. But the one that he picks and cites more commonly than that is this passage from Habakkuk, where in the first chapter of the book of Romans, he, you will remember he was looking for something to clinch his argument. And in that 16th verse, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in Christ and in that gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written. Let me illustrate, he says. As Habakkuk said, the just shall live by faith. Now, when he was writing his Galatian letter, which may have been the first letter that he wrote, certainly a strategic one in Paul's development. He is writing to these people who came, to whom he came and they believed in Christ. They were converted. He went on his way. Some Jewish teachers came and said, it's all right for you to believe in Jesus, but you've also got to be circumcised. You've also got to keep all of the Mosaic law. So salvation is not through Jesus alone. It's through Jesus plus all these things that you do. And so they became confused and they turned to their own works instead of to the Spirit working within them, the life of Christ within them. And as they did... They began to fall from grace. They began to find themselves in confusion and living in a completely different spiritual world. And so Paul wrote to them to straighten them out. And he said, I want to tell you that the gospel that I'm preaching to you is not something I dreamed up. It came from God. And I believe it enough that if anybody else comes to you and preaches anything else, you let him be accursed. Because what I am telling you is, this is the word of God. And what is it? You began in the Spirit. Now that you began with the Spirit of God, as we were talking about last night, chapter 3 of Galatians, and you began with the Spirit of God transforming you, making you new people, putting a new dynamic within you, Christian love, 
putting within you a new ability to live in terms of the law of God and the patterns of God. You began that way in the spirit. Now are you going to be made perfect in the flesh? No, there is nothing in the flesh that can perfect you. And you must turn again to the principle of faith. And then in that third chapter, he quotes that text, the just shall live by faith. I don't know whether the writer of the book of Hebrews was Paul or not, but I know that in the book of Hebrews, you get that text quoted for the third time in the New Testament. You come to the 10th chapter, he has talked about faith, about Christ making a way for us through into the very presence of God through a sacrifice made once for all, forever, never having to be repeated. And then he says, now that you have come to that, how are you going to live? He says, uh, you cannot live in sin because Christ gives you salvation to save you from it. And if you sin willfully after that the knowledge of the truth has come to you, why, he says, you sin willfully and deliberately, and there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. But that's not the way you're supposed to live. Through faith there is a life and a power that comes into you so that you can live a victorious. You can live a Christian. You can live a holy life. And that comes only by faith. Now, it isn't always easy because you may find that you suffer some persecution. And then he begins to list the troubles that they had gone through. They, many of them, these people to whom he was writing in the Hebrew letter, were people who had lost all their possessions because of their faith in Christ. Many of them had suffered physical, physically for their faith in Christ. And he says, now how are you going to live when all these troubles fall on you? You don't live by saying everything's working right, God loves me and God is being good to me, therefore I'm a Christian. When the world falls in you, you still live by faith because the just shall live by faith. When you come to Christian history, you can find a threefold witness comparable to that. You will remember this is a text that brought the truth alive to, to Martin Luther. Standing under a tree in a, in a thunderstorm, the lightning struck the tree, and his buddy who was with him was killed, and instantly he was made conscious of eternity. Planning to be a lawyer, go into the legal profession, he suddenly began to think, what if that lightning had struck me, where would I be now? firm believer that if he had died, he would have been in hell, why he began to get concerned about that. So he went to a monastery, took vows, became a monk, and began to live a very ascetic, very difficult life, an abstemious life. He tried to be the, the most stringent of all the monks in his monastery, trying to earn his salvation. He worked at it. He prayed. He fasted. He did everything he knew to do. And he confessed. He found that the scriptures indicated that you should confess your sins. So he got a father confessor. And he confessed and confessed and confessed and confessed. The big things and the smaller things and the little things and the middle and the many-sized things. And then the things of no consequence whatsoever. And finally his father confessor turned to him and said, Brother Mark, don't come back until you've got something worth confessing. And you thought, he thought he was making progress. And then one day he lived all day without doing anything that upset his conscience. And he said, isn't that marvelous? I'm getting there. And then the Spirit of God said to him, oh, the greatest of all sins is pride. And he said, it's a no-win game, isn't it? The Lord said, yeah, it is a no-win game. <laughs> you can't win this one. You can only accept it. And that text burned like fire in his mind. The just live by faith. Not by what they do. By faith in Jesus Christ. And Martin Luther came to personal faith in Christ. You will remember that it was the preface of Martin Luther's inter, uh, uh, commentary on the book of Romans that was being read when John Wesley came to personal faith. 
He was a priest in the Church of England. He'd been a missionary in the United States. He came to America to convert the Indians. He fasted regularly. He was a man of tremendous prayer. He was so disciplined in his quiet time and all of his religious activities that they called him a Methodist in contempt and scorn. He visited the prisons. He preached to the prisoners who were ready for execution. He did more social work than most of us before his conversion than most of us will do in a lifetime after conversion. But one day a Moravian looked at him and said, Mr. Wesley, do you have faith? He said, I believe Christ died for the sins of the world, but did he die for your sins, Mr. Wesley? Well, he said, I know that he died for the sins of the world. Mr. Bowler said, but Mr. Wesley, did he die for your sins? Are your sins forgiven? Mr. Wesley said, how can I answer you on that? I don't know whether my sins are forgiven or not. Mr. Bowler said, you don't believe. And Leslie said, then I'm an unbeliever. Do I quit preaching? Bowler lovingly and wisely said, no, preach faith until you have faith. He knew a prisoner that was to be executed. So he went to him and said, mister, did you know that if you believed in Jesus, he'd forgive your sins? And the man said, really? And the guy getting ready to die believed in Jesus and came to glorious peace. And he said, Mr. Wesley, it's true. He's forgiven me all my sins. I'm not afraid to die. I'm ready to meet him. I'm ready. Mr. Wesley said, that's strange. I'm not. <laughs> and so one of his converts witnessed to him about how he could be saved. And one night he went to church unwillingly to a non-Anglican church, an independent church, and as he sat there, they were reading Luther's preface to the book of Romans, you will remember. And as they read it, Wesley said, and I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I felt that I did believe that God, for Christ's sake, because I believed, had forgiven me my sins, even mine. And you and I are here today because of that. That text, magnificent. The just shall live by faith. Now, there are three things I want to say about it. One of them is that faith is the last thing any of us will ever do, but it's supposed to be the first thing. Because it's the initial thing. It's the beginning. You've never started until you believe. Wait a minute. God's life never starts in you until you believe. wonder why it is that it's so hard to believe. Something about sin in its impact on us has left us to where we feel that we must do it. And there is no salvation in you. It is all in him. Jesus is the Savior in Jesus alone. And we keep trying to help him out. And it's only when we come to the end of ourselves and look up and trust him that then he is the one who does it. And do you know if he did any of it a minute before, we'd go out saying, we did it, didn't we? And God is not going to let you say, I did it, or even we did it. The people who are going to be in his kingdom are people who are going to say, he did it. He did it all. But it's hard for us to get to the point where we really believe. We had an old professor in the seminary, great theologian, Dr. Frank Paul Morris. He was a member of a small Methodist church in, in, in Indiana. They were having to have a revival, and he began getting ready. So he made all his restitution, made all his confession, did everything. And the first night they gave an altar call, he came to the altar and knelt and prayed. Prayed, 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 and prayed, and people prayed with him. And finally he got up and went home. The next night they gave an altar call and they came back again. Every night during the revival that they gave an invitation, he went to the altar and the last night he was still there. He was the last person there. Nothing happened. 
he went home. Disconsolate, discouraged, despairing. Midweek, he went to the class meeting. When he got to the class meeting, they did an old Methodist fashion. They started down the road saying, how is it with your soul tonight? And they got to his row, and they got to the guy right next to him. And he said, what will I ever say? I have nothing to say. And he stood up and said, began to weep, young person, wept. He said, folk, you know me. Most of you prayed with me at the altar. I repented. I confessed. I made restitution. I did everything I knew to do. I prayed at home. I prayed in church. I prayed in the field. I prayed in the barn. I've done everything I know to do. I guess if I ever get saved, the only way I'll ever get saved, he'll have to. Thank God he saved me. That's the way most of us back into it. But that's the principle of the Christian life. When we come to the place where we let him, but you've got to create a context in which he can work. And the context in which he can work is penitent faith. And when you trust him, he does. Now, it isn't your faith that saves you. Christ alone is the Savior. But it's penitent faith that gives him the context in which he will do his work. Now, after you've come to that place of personal faith, you know, many people say, ah, oh, now I'm saved, I'm in. Let me say, no, you're going to have to keep on believing the same as you did the moment you started. Because the text doesn't say, if a man believes he'll be saved, the text says the just man will live by faith. Every day that he ever lives, every step that he ever takes, is supposed to be taken in faith. Now, as a man walks with Christ, he will find that not only is he justified by faith so that now he stands accepted and his sins forgiven, but he will find that the only way to live a holy life, which is the way a Christian is supposed to live, is by faith. But I want to tell you something. In the same way that most of us do our best to save ourselves before we let him do it, most of us do our best to sanctify ourselves before we let him sanctify us. How does a man live his life after he becomes a Christian? He's supposed to live a holy, godly, devout life, a life of love. Now, the average person, after he becomes a Christian, will find that there remains of sin left in him, remains of self-centeredness and ego concern, that even on his best days sometimes there will be those things about him that he knows are wrong. We had an evangelist come to my hometown when I was a kid had one of the most profound influences on our town of any man who ever came. Presbyterian evangelist left us and went to another neighboring southern town. And while they were putting up the tent, somebody came along and harried him a bit. He lost his temper. Just told that guy off in no uncertain terms. And all of his ministry so great in one town, was absolutely useless in the next. John Hyde was a Presbyterian missionary in India. He hadn't learned the language. He listened to, an, to a missionary preach. And when he had finished preaching, an Indian who spoke perfect English walked up and looked at the missionary who had spoken, and he was standing next to him. And he said, sir, you say that the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man from all sin and the power of the Spirit can give a man victory over all sin. 
Has he given you that kind of victory? And John Hyde said, I stood there and for a moment was terrified. I was afraid he was going to turn and look at me and say, has he given you that kind of victory? And he said, I was a Presbyterian missionary. But he said, there was one sin in my life, one habit in my life I had never had victory over. And he said, I turned to watch to see what that other missionary would say. And he said, he very humbly and very graciously said, yes, he has given me that kind of victory in my life. John Hyde said, I went to my room, locked the door, got on my knees next to my bed and said, God, if you can't do something for me, there's no point in my staying in India. And if you don't do something better for me than what you have done, I'm booking passage on the next boat back to the United States. Because I would betray your cause if somebody asked me that question. John Hyde said in that hour the Holy Spirit came to him and filled him in a way that he had never known before and did a sanctifying work within his heart. Then John Hyde became probably the most effective Presbyterian missionary in that generation. He became known as Praying Hyde. Never a great preacher, but the kind of man that through a period of his life one year won one person to Christ a day in personal contact another day year one, two, and another year three, and another year four. He said, you know, I think if I'd had faith, I could have gotten it up where it ought to be. I met the man who succeeded him on that post. And I said, were the stories about John Hyde true? Well, he said, his personal servant was my personal servant. He said, I had a chance to ask him all about them. He said he was apparently a greater man than any of us knew. But where did it come? It came when in his own life after his conversion, he knew there were things in his life that needed to be purged. He came to a place and said, God, unless you can do something for me. That means he's come to the end of himself, doesn't it? He's not saying, God, I'll do this and then. He's saying, unless you can do something for me. And he prostrated himself and God did it. And out of that life came great blessing. I want to say a third thing. I know the bell's going to ring in one minute, so you just sit stick. Maybe I can do it in two and a half minutes. I'll try. There are three things I want to address myself to this morning. Just pin them down. No man is saved who doesn't believe. Believing is what brings saving grace. You are no more able to sanctify yourself than you are to save yourself. If you're going to be the kind of Christian God wants you to be, you'll only be that as a believer by coming and saying, I need you to do a deeper sanctifying work in my heart. The third thing. I think you'll have to live out the rest of your life in faith in terms of Christian service. I'd finished two years at Asbury. I began thinking I would go into law. My father was a lawyer. That enamored me. But as I walked with Christ, that lost its appeal. Then I thought I'd teach philosophy. I thought maybe that would be worthwhile. Everybody would like to do something worthwhile. And slowly that began to lose its appeal to me. And there began to grow within my heart a desire to give myself to eternal things. And I remember saying, Lord, what will I do with my life? I have no call. A fellow student here came to me and said, Dennis, would you preach with me in the mission that I'm preaching in? I said, I can't. I'm not called to preach. And he said, well, 
I need somebody to help. You could teach a Sunday school class, couldn't you? I said, yeah, you don't have to be called to preach to teach a Sunday school class. So I started teaching the Sunday school class. And he said, well, Dennis, I have a jail service in the afternoon. You could take that, couldn't you, on occasion? I thought, well, if you're preaching to prisoners, you're speaking to them, maybe you don't have to be called to preach to do that. You don't stand in a pulpit. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. So I began taking half the jail services. Through all that period, there was that thing, you know, it'd be marvelous. I'd like to, but I don't have any call. I kicked through that thing for eight months or more. Then one day I sat down with Andrew Gallman and looked at me and said, Dennis, why don't you try it? I said, that would be blasphemy. He said, Aren't all the lights in your life in that direction red except for a call, or green except for a call? And I said, yeah. Well, he said, maybe the Lord's waiting for you to take a step of faith. And I said, well, that's not the way I thought it worked. God's way is seldom the way we think it works. Whether it's for conversion, holiness, doesn't matter. And I got to thinking, you know, I know this. God made us for a place where we can lose ourselves. And I thought, you know, the only place that I really think I could be content is fully, totally in his service. Do you suppose that condition, that desire is God's work? And then I said, Lord, I'm going to preach the gospel or I'm going into full-time Christian service unless you turn some lights red in my, in my face. And the minute I took that step of faith, there was something inside me that just as clearly as could be said, why under the sun haven't you felt this way all along? And from that moment to this, there's never been a question about where my place in life has been. There's been an inner witness that it's been in full-time Christian service. You see, there was the step of faith, and then there was the witness that came. Now, the only way that you can live a Christian life is by faith, in which you look at him, and you step out in faith, you act in faith, you believe, and then your life comes out of that faith. And when you do, you will find that the faith that is in you creates a condition in which the life of God can do its perfect work in your heart. I used to ride the New York Central across New York State from the west to the east, a good bit from the east to the west. I remember that coming into New York City from the north, we always used to stop at a little town that I'd never heard of called Harmon. I'd heard of Buffalo and Syracuse and Rochester and Utica and Albany and Schenectady and Poughkeepsie, but I'd never heard of Harmon. We spent longer there than we did in any place except Buffalo and Albany. So one day I walked back to the conductor and I said, what are we stopping Harmon for? How big a place is this? He said, oh, it's just a little dumb. I said, why do we stop here for so long? Oh, he said, here's where we change engines. And he said, here is where we pick up an electric engine because you can't take steam engines into the city of New York. He said, would you like to see one? So I walked out. I always loved those huge, big, long steam engines. They were massive things. And on a winter day, snow on the ground, with those things belching steam, they were magnificent. Huge, pulsing, you know, with power. 
because with that steam going, they talked all the time. I looked at a dumpy, chunky little piece of metal that was there, and I said, is that thing going to pull that long train? Oh, he said, no problem. I said, well, it doesn't even breathe. That other one just pulsing, you know. He said, it'll do it. I said, how does it do it? Oh, he said, it isn't the size of the engine that counts. He said, come over here. At Harmon, whereas you'd had two rails all the way from Chicago to New York to Harmon. There were three rails the rest of the way. The third was a rail on the side. Not on the bottom, but on the side. And he said, Dennis, that's hooked into all the power of Niagara Mohawk. And he said, if you'll look, you'll see that there's a metal shoe on the side of these engines at both ends and in between. And when we get ready to move, he pulls a lever and it just pushes that metal shoe up to that third rail. And all the power that Niagara Falls can produce is available. It's not the size of the engine that counts. It's the connection with the source of power. He said, well, I guess we better go, Dennis. We walked in and suddenly we began to move off. Didn't jump and rumble like this the way the old steam engine started. Started just as smooth and steady as could be. We moved from Harmon all the way into the city and into Grand Central Station under the city of New York. I thought, yeah, that's the way it works. The thing that makes the connection to the divine power is when I put my personal faith in it. The shoe doesn't do anything except become a conduit for the power to move. And it's as you put your faith in him and trust him. Your faith becomes the conduit for the Holy Spirit's power to forgive, to regenerate, to renew, to sanctify, to guide you, to give you what you need to serve him. I'd like to ask you, is the shoe in place and is the connection made? That really is what it's all about.